Ward Podcast, episode 55, go. So, uh, hi, Henry. Hello there. Thanks very much for having me on the show. <laughs> no problem. Henry Hoffman, uh, creator of, one of the creators of Hugh the Game, and um, and your company is Fiddlesticks, correct? Yeah, that's right. So it's called Fiddlesticks, and then it's just me and one other guy called Dan DeRusha. He does the business, and I make the games. Oh, cool. Um, so... For anyone listening, you can tell that I didn't introduce anyone else because Alex, Dan, Mason are all doing different commitments. I think Alex has a old buddy in town, so he had to uh, bow out. Dan is out somewhere uh, doing stuff with his band, and then Mason is rowing currently because they were doing some sort of alumni row that I didn't go to because I was like, no, nah, I got to talk to Henry about games. <laughs> it sounds like they all have a much more active social life than I do. Yeah, you and me both. Uh, um, but yeah, so um, they all wanted to be on, of course, but the, things are keeping them away. So it's just going to be uh, you and me today talking cool, cool. about game stuff. Sounds good to me. Awesome. Um, so yeah, you just released Hugh, the game. So give me your elevator pitch for Hugh. Yeah, I mean, my elevator pitch is still terribly unrefined. Um, well, you're not the business guy, so it's fine. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's uh, a puzzle adventure game where you play as Hugh, this character that can change the background of the world. By changing the background color of the world, you can make objects sort of appear and disappear. Um, your mother, she's a scientist. So in this world, everyone sees a black and white. And your mother's a scientist, and she uh, studies the theory of colors, which to them is sort of completely hypothetical because all they can see is black and white. Um, but she becomes so absolutely convinced that color exists. Um, she ends up creating this ring that actually allows her to perceive color for the first time. And then she disappears under these sort of mysterious circumstances. And you play as the titular Hugh, who goes off on this adventure, uh, piecing together your mother's research in a bid to find out what happened to her. And what was the, uh, the kind of genesis for this game? Because I think um, you guys have been working on it for two years. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. How long development took? Because, um, you know, we had Rich Atlas on a couple weeks ago, and whenever we talk to devs, it's, you know, they talk about either, oh, I, I worked on this in a game jam, and I saw that the idea had legs, or, you know, this is just something I really wanted to create for a long time, or, you know, I really like the mechanics in this other game, and so I wanted to try to emulate that but put my own twist on it. So what was, what was kind of the thing with you and Dan? Yeah, I mean, so there was no sort of one thing that where, where the game started, I can point to like maybe three different things that happened around the same time that kind of gave birth to the idea. Um, so a while ago, I did a game jam originally, which was a thing called Tiga Game Hack, which is a really awesome game jam in London. Pinewood Studios, where they do a lot of um, big movie filming productions like James Bond and Star Wars and stuff. I got to do a game jam there, which was amazing. And I created a little game called Beyond the Wardrobe, which was like a, it was a twin stick infinite runner. Um, and that really got me interested in using the right analog stick as like an, an input method. Um, so that's kind of where the control idea started germinating. Um, and then after that, I was messing around in Photoshop one day and I was kind of sliding the hue slider back and forth, 
uh, were there was a background color and a colored object. And I, as the background changed hue, I found it really interesting how the um, the other object kind of faded into it and visibly appeared and disappeared as the hue slider changed. I thought that could be an interesting game mechanic where if something visibly disappears, that it also physically disappeared. Um, and I thought that could be an interesting sort of puzzle mechanic. And then once I sort of, I sort of got thinking about that, um, I got very interested in color theory and I did a lot of research into sort of color theory history as well as a lot of philosophy associated with color. Um, and that was like hugely captivating in terms of sort of uh, narrative potential. I didn't think it had really been explored much in video games. Um, so those three things sort of were really buzzing in my mind and they came together and I, I put together a prototype in a couple of weeks for Hugh. Um, and that's really, yeah, really where it kicked off. Cool. So, um, what is, what is like, what are you classically trained in? Are you an artist or a software developer or where's your, like, I mean, assuming you, you know, had a, you went to university or yeah. just trained on your own? Well, so coming out of school, I worked as a web developer. So I, I went straight into web development, well, more web design, web development, but web development was kind of a necessity. Um, and at college, I studied media studies. So I learned a lot about uh, audio production, radio production, um, film, animation, uh, video editing, all that sort of stuff, like everything you need really to do a good marketing job with video in video games as an independent. Mm -hmm. um, and then I went to university and I studied video games design. So I've kind of got quite a broad sort of academic knowledge when it comes to all aspects of sort of marketing and video production and everything else. But it really, I think my, my real training was in design, game design, um, which had more of a, a slightly more arts artsy focus than uh, maybe some of the other design courses. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, for me, for me, it's, uh, I went from being an artist to being a uh, computer scientist, oh, cool. but also having a business degree. Yeah, so that's um, you you always see that kind of you know versatility like playing a huge advantage in in games specifically, and when you you know or knocking it on your own, it's not like you know you, you have your your co founder to to help you with the business side, yeah. and you know I have Mason who does more of the marketing stuff, but that's awesome. It's always interesting those those the passing that stuff. Yeah, it's because the business stuff is I'm just absolutely dreadful at when it comes to accounting or. Uh, like making sure I'm filing my taxes on time or anything that requires filling out a form. I'm just like, uh -huh. I'll ignore it until it goes away. And then uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's just, I'm just awful at it. So that's kind of why I had to get this other guy on board. And it's been great for that. It means it takes a lot of the stress of running out of a business out of the design process, which I found hugely disabling. Uh, in the first game that I made, which was called Mush, I was doing all the business, all the accounting, and, and trying to do the bulk of the design. And I found the design was just... Uh, massively inhibited because I was trying to think about all these other things that was way outside of my comfort zone, all these business things. Um, right. so, so that's kind of why we moved in this direction for the next project, which has worked a lot better for sure. And, and I would say like when you are juggling all those different hats, it like there's like a onboarding process where you need to switch like disciplines. Yeah, totally. So if you get like deep into the business side of things, it's like, all right, well, I need to spend five hours working on the design. You need like a good couple like at least an hour or so to like get you yourself out of that I, yeah mindset. i need like a day really i just have to, i couldn't <laughs> do it that day if i was doing business that day i couldn't do anything else like properly anyway i would need to wake mm -hmm. up fresh the next morning and then do something else um, i do know people that do separate it by days like that where yeah. it's like okay these are these are my business days and these are these are my artistic creative days yeah 
I think I might have to and do that. I, if, if I do do business in the future, I, I think I'll dedicate one day a week to doing it and be really strict and make sure that I didn't do any design stuff and try and get all the business stuff done that day for that week if possible. Yeah. Um, when I was when I was in college, that I found that to be very helpful too because there was a point where I was doing art and business classes and ironically, it was set up perfectly. Where I was like, all right, Mondays and Wednesdays are my art days where I'm doing all my studio classes and Tuesdays or Thursdays are when I'm taking accounting and economics and business calculus and awesome. it works out and it does allow you to, to switch your mindset yeah, a lot easier. That's good. Especially I think when you've got that routine as well, once you've got that routine, it becomes very easy because you know what to expect the days after and you kind of get into that rhythm. Yeah. I think that's, that helps a lot. So, um, so you start, so you had all these ideas germinating, mm-hmm. as you said, and, and you kind of wanted to, to make it into a game. And then, so you said you had a prototype and then what was the next step? Did you start submitting it to to competitions, things like that? Well, so we, so we didn't have a prototype to begin with. What we did, we put together a pitch. And we put together three pitches for three different games. Um, and this was actually our second favorite pitch. So we had a preferred game that we wanted to make over this one. Um, and we were pitching it to sort of publishers, studios, platform holders, like all, all sorts of people. Um, and we were quite far along getting the first, our preferred project funded. Um, mm-hmm by a big platform holder, um, but they dropped out at the last minute. Um, and the, this, the second game was kind of a backup plan. So we approached investors in London with the second game. Um, and, uh, there was this one particular investor, they hadn't funded any games yet, but they were moving into that space. Um, and they were really interested. Um, but I could tell that they weren't hundred percent convinced. Um, so I proposed that I put together a prototype in a couple of weeks, um, to try and win them over. And they were, of course, they were on board with me producing two weeks of work for free. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I went away and I did that. I worked really hard. I used a, a different engine. I used Construct 2 for that, um, just because it's really good for rapid prototyping. Um, managed to churn out uh, quite a polished vertical slice in two weeks. And um, yeah, and then they were, they were they were on board and then we were able to secure the funding from that prototype, really. Awesome. Um, would you say... Uh, knowing not not knowing much about like the UK dev scene, um, would you say like funding opportunities, you know, for the arts in general or for video games is pretty robust there? Or so there is a lot of arts funding if you know the system, and w- we've not really tried to navigate like the the public sector funding stuff, like the government mm-hmm. arts funding, and like there's a lot of funding coming out of the European Union as well. Um, we went more the private routes. We've got some sort of uh, private investors, which is, they're called Kuju. And what they do is they crowdsource investment from a whole bunch of different private individuals. Um, and then it works a lot like angel investment, I guess. I'm right. not the business guy, so I don't know a huge amount about it. <laughs> um, but uh, in terms of private investment, there's a there's huge opportunities at the moment. Um, because what I found is that investment always lags a little bit behind the industry. So there was the big indie gold rush, maybe five, right. five years ago or so. So now all the investors are kind of just getting up to speed with that. Um, just around the time of the indie apocalypse, apparently, which is probably <laughs> apparently <laughs> the the indie apocalypse we're still waiting on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So yeah, in terms of private, I'm familiar with the private investment that seems to be booming at the moment. There's loads of it, it in terms of VR space as well, um, but a load of a load of it for indie games and stuff as well. Um, mm-hmm. And I think if you've got a good prototype, it's very uh, easy to secure if you're willing to put the time in trying to secure that investment. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, in terms of arts funding as well, we know quite a few people who have secured arts funding, more so in Europe than the UK. There's a lot of it flowing around in uh, in the Netherlands and uh, Sweden. Um, but yeah, it's good. And there's funding really creative projects as well. It's more less corporate driven i think which is really interesting seeing some really nice experimental games come out of europe and like belgium as well belgium's got a really amazing emergent experimental game scene um so it's, it's really exciting to see that stuff yeah here here in the states or specifically richmond since this is where i took i went to college and i studied entrepreneurship mm. and you know having to do kind of the the shopping yourself around doing the the, the pitching but Specifically, being video games and, and media oriented, it's 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 a different beast because Richmond, Virginia is. Um, I feel like the big the big industries here are kind of financial and then uh, um, financial tech and uh, medical tech because we have a big uh, medical campus that's part of uh, VCU, which is the college I went to, and stuff like that. So, um, but there's a big art scene, there's a big music scene, things like that. Being the capital of Virginia and but when you're, you know, pitching video games in your in your entrepreneurship classes, as opposed to someone trying to pitch, you know, the classic Silicon Valley technology stuff, applications, things like that. Yeah, it's a, it's a much different beast. Kind of, people kind of cock, your, cock their head for a second and they're like, what? And then you say, well, here's the, you know, here's the size of the industry. Here's how many billions of dollars it's worth. Blah, 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 blah. Here's the here's the market potential, things like that. Yeah, sure. Um, that's interesting yeah have you i think you've got a show over in the u.s called shark's den or something i can't is that what it's called uh shark tank shark yeah. tank yeah so we've got a, a very similar show called dragon's den over here and uh there's they've only had one video game project pitched at least last time i checked and i think it was it was for the wii u at the time um but the the guy was just absolutely laughed out of the room like they, they didn't listen to any of the statistics or anything it's just the fact that it was a video game they were just not not prepared to uh, waste their time on it which is seems crazy to me well i mean it you know it's a lot of risk for you know m- moderate return depending sure. on you know most most investors they're looking for 10x you know multiple for what they're investing in and you know when you say oh i'm making a product and especially a entertainment product you know it'd be the same thing if you were a a you know director and you went to you know, an angel investor or to a venture company, venture capital organization and try to pitch your movie script and be like, this is the movie we want to make. <laughs> and we're like, okay, you have systems in place to do that. And they're much more tuned into how to handle that capital. It's like, we don't, we're not interested. Sure, sure. Um, so from our perspective, uh, you know, what my professors constantly told me to do is like, you got, you got to treat it like a brand, you know, you have to like, don't go in there and sell, your tennis shoes go in there and sell Nike. Like you need to, you need to approach this problem differently because if you're just, just thinking about the next day and the next sale and the next product, they, you know, they need, they want to hear your, your, your 10 year plan, not your, you know, next product out the door plan. Sure. Sure. The brands really. Yes. Um, but also I just don't think, you know, the way venture capital is set up, it's not set up for entertainment in, in general or video games because i mean it's just it's just not unless you're like title or something or you know or a smartphone application developer company that's like we're gonna we're gonna make pokemon go but it's like angry birds but you know because because they can because investors understand that yeah sure that's a good pitch you should pitch that 
<laughs> Every stop is as an angry bird, and then you <laughs> take your catapult item that you have to spend ten dollars to purchase uh, on yes. our in-game in store, and then you launch it to the next stop. <laughs> I don't know. How's do you follow that at all, Pokemon Go? Uh, so I've been following it closely. It won't. My phone doesn't support it though. It's really annoying. I would have quite happily picked it up and had a go with it, but. Uh, it doesn't run on my really old Android device, so uh, uh, I'm planning to upgrade when the new, uh, I think it's the Pixel gets announced, um, but until then, I've, I haven't had a chance to properly play it. It's really nice, though. It's really nice going to the parks in London and seeing loads of people wandering around collecting Pokemon. <laughs> just just neck deep in their phones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the yeah. thing is, I don't think they would have got out of the house otherwise, so it's a, it's a welcome compromise. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's the argument, and you know, I've certainly enjoyed my time with it. And what's nice is, uh, by my old job, um, or you know, my old job was at the university. At uh, you know, it surrounds a park, so you just look out at lunchtime, and everyone's just out in the park, yeah, trying exactly. to catch their their pidgeys. <laughs> um, but man, you gotta get that, gotta get that Europe exclusive. I forget what it is. I think it's Mister Mime. Oh, is that what Europe you guys exclusive? Have. Oh, I didn't realize. Yeah. That. So there's like continental exclusivity for one Pokemon. Ah, that's cool. Um, we have Tauros, so the bull. You guys have Mr. Mime. Asia has Farfetch'd, which is the duck. Ah. And I think Australia has Kangaskhan, which is like the bipedal dinosaur kangaroo thing. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, that 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 game's certainly been interesting to to track, and especially since like you know it had its flash in the pan. And now it's kind of died down, but I mean, I feel like it's still doing fine. Uh, yeah, I think it, uh, I think it grew too quickly, really, for, and it could never meet that expectation. Whereas I think right. it's going to probably level out and have more of a realistic player base. Um, I think it's still going to be massively popular. There's lots of people mm-hmm. were complaining about up to game updates that broke it in various ways, but I, d- yeah. I don't, I'm, I haven't been following that too closely, so I can't really comment. But I don't know if that was your experience. Um, I, I kind of stopped playing it mm-hmm. before, before all those issues. So the big issue is like, they took out the like Pokemon seeker thing. Well, yeah, they did two big things. First off, they like redid, uh, completely revamped the, um, the nearby thing. So it basically tells you what Pokemon are nearby, mm. but redid it in the way that broke it. Like it just wasn't functioning correctly, like functioning way less than it was before, uh, which right. is difficult to do and then they started just shutting off third-party access to their api so like there was one really well-known app that had basically had a map of the i don't know if it went outside the u.s but basically told you where the spawn rates for pokemon in certain areas in your town uh, right. turned off access to that uh, but yeah i feel like those were the big the big uh uh complaints against it and after those happened i think you know everyone either left or Put up with it sure sure i wonder what their reasoning yeah. was for turning off third party api access um i think it was uh network pinging uh, okay. that they were already having such network difficulties um and stabilization that they just needed to start cutting stuff that sure. wasn't pivotal to most people's experience okay so maybe they'll start turning it back on again once the player base levels out that's interesting maybe <laughs> maybe not maybe they'll just implement it themselves and yeah. be like pay you know Five dollar buy-in. Uh, yeah, get access to this map. Um, I feel like that and No Man's Sky mm. have kind of the or the big items on the newswire this summer in terms of you know darlings that either did or didn't 
meet expectations and all the things about that. Sure, sure. So what are your thoughts on No Man's Sky? Um, we kind of talked about them last week. Okay. Um, I, f- I feel like they, uh, well, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I wasn't like, no, we're not talking about that. <laughs> uh, the, um, basically, I feel like you know, they didn't set proper expectations, obviously, like, you know, it was a communications issue first and foremost. And, um, I think Hello Games primarily, uh, just didn't know how to deal with the scale. Not just of their... Well, I mean, they knew how to deal with the scale of their game for the most part, but the scale of just the excitement. And I think they were just afraid of saying anything that was just going to shoot them in their foot before the game came out. Sure, um, sure. So, so they, I think they just preferred to just keep it quiet and just see how, where the wind took them. Yeah. But uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of all the flack Hello Games and Sean Murray are receiving from from this no no of course yeah 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 it's a difficult one i think it was i don't think there was any maliciousness involved i think it was just i mean when you're a studio that size like communicating with a mass audience and having that much hype behind you like this i i can see myself doing exactly the same thing as what they did where you're making uh, not necessarily promises but you're uh talking about features that you you want included or that you're working on that you see as kind of uh, like really instrumental to the game yourself like your vision and you're completely convinced that it's going to make it in the game but then when you've got these deadlines and these cutoff points maybe it gets cut and there's nothing you can do about it and mm-hmm. um yeah and then you've got no real way to manage expectations because you're the face of the company um so yeah i can see that they went through a lot of difficulty i think it, uh, working with sony um made it very difficult for them because they they were bound to this sort of release whereas if they were if they retained their independence they would have more flexibility they could perhaps do early access or work with different models get players involved in different ways um so i think it's a, i think they got themselves in a difficult position there wasn't really much they could do yeah um oh, i was gonna say something it uh reminded me a lot of just in terms of the uh the the public reaction um I don't know if you've watched the Broken Age documentary by Double Fine. If you've seen that series, I haven't actually. No, um, it's pretty good. I never, I, I didn't get a chance to finish it, but it's all up on YouTube now. Cool. And it was uh, originally just for the uh, backers of the Kickstarter, but they go into the part where they decided to break it into two um, parts uh, and put the first part up as early access and charge people the amount for that game and then said that the second half of Broken Age will be out when it's done, like a year or so afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and then justifying it internally and also putting out, like, you know, press release about it and everything that they, uh, you know, they needed more funding, they needed more capital, and this was the best way to both get the the funding that they needed and also deliver the the experience that they wanted to deliver and most people you know weren't the most understanding about that sure sure uh and i think it's it's difficult because no matter how hard you try to justify the the your balancing of of business and and art and making your game i feel like there's there's going to be people who straight up won't listen who you know had different expectations set in your head and it's, it's a very deal dealing with customers 
in that way and just trying to be open and honest as possible is is I know it feels it feels like a lost cause in a lot of ways but um and I mean I don't know if you've been paying attention to the Apple event either but you know the whole headphone jack oh yeah yeah sure thing <laughs> Uh, I feel like is a, is another indication of that. Whereas, you know, that, that one kind of has maybe some more justifiable arguments in that. Cause you know, you're, you're making, you're removing a technology that so many is so ubiquitous, things like that. But it's a lot of like, how do you get the public to understand where you're coming from, especially when you rely on the public so much for your survival? Sure, it's a difficult one. I mean, some games or game studios do seem to manage it quite well. I don't really know how. CD Projekt, uh, I think this this CD Projekt, isn't it? Made the Witcher series. They've got a yeah. very good public image. And it seems that whatever they do, uh, people will defend them. Um, and I'm not entirely sure how they built that. I don't know whether, it, whether it's through just the sheer quality of the products, uh, the openness uh, they often thank the consumers and uh, they seem very uh, receptive to criticism and stuff, but I'm sh- they they seem to be invincible at the moment. Um, so I, I don't really know if they have a team that manages that side of things or whether they're just genuinely really genuine about everything that they're working on. Um, um, I don't know. I think, I think it comes with age mm. and experience. Like I, I forget how old CD Projekt Red is, but you know they come from that classic CRPG kind of uh, lineage. Sure. So I'm sure there's plenty of there's a huge player base just from that era that sticks with them, and as long as they maintain those ideals, they'll they'll probably follow them to the to the ends of the earth. I mean, you see the opposite effect with things like Bethesda, where Bethesda's key releases, some diehard fans argue it's not you know they're they're both blowing out the scope while at the same time shrinking the scope because of the decisions they're making. And uh, I don't know. I think it's that and them just constantly trying to uh, put out high quality products and also a, a they put a longer tail on their, their support for their products Sure. because, you know, they just released a patch for The Witcher 3 like a couple months ago, but it was a good nine to 12 months after that game's release. So you could see that they're still supporting games well long after their what we perceive as usual game life spans yeah exactly but um yeah so have you um so we can keep talking about hugh if you want well one thing i want to talk about hugh which i think is uh really interesting since i got you here (laughs) i want to talk about uh um uh, accessibility Mm -hmm. settings in hugh because the first time I saw it for um, trailer or GIF, I forget where I, when I first saw it, um, it uh, I was like, oh, awesome, a color-based game. This, you know, being an artist is like I appreciate that. The coolest part was that you know that you guys are touching into the the light bar on the PS4 controller. I thought that was the <laughs> coolest part. I was like, man, all right, yeah. <laughs> uh, man. So, uh, you, do you know about the Razer keyboard stuff? The Razer, yes. yeah. I don't know if you've seen yeah. that, but we we tap into all that as well. So all your keyboards your mice your headphones everything lights up if you play it on pc and, oh that's cool and we're also working on with philips here at the moment as well they they have like the smart light bulbs so yeah we can control the lighting in your entire house to make it match the game that you're playing which would be pretty fun <laughs> all right so uh, i have a, I have a quick anecdote about hue light bulbs that i'm, I'm going to tangent into okay. um 
I worked at an app developer as an intern one summer, and um, they had a Hue light bulb installed over the uh, basically the open office, the desk where all the devs worked, and it would flash purple uh, every twenty minutes to tell the developers, "Hey, look away from your screen." It's like I don't know. Standard or studies have shown like you shouldn't constant you shouldn't stare at your screen constantly for more than twenty minutes. So it just reminds you to just blink your eyes, look away from your screen for half a minute or so that's cool except once every afternoon instead of it fading from you know the traditional white into the purple it would fade into green and i would go guys why is it green and one of the devs goes look at your clock and it was 420 and i was like all right (laughs) uh but yeah that's really cool i like plugging into all that stuff like that kind of out out of game arg experience almost to kind of accentuate the the main selling point i guess for lack of a better word of your of your game yeah totally i mean there's probably a business like a business argument for integrating all that stuff but the only reason i really did it is because it was pretty fun (laughs) (laughs) how hard is that uh ps4 api so that's super Um, easy the ps4 stuff is super easy um and it works perfectly with the game like that i had no trouble with that at all so the way that i developed i had like um a light peripheral manager that, uh, that I developed in the game. And then all I did is I plugged the PS4 uh, API into my existing integration. Um, so it was it was like one line of code. And then it just worked with all the stuff that I've done for Razer and Philips Hue already. Wow. Does it take RGB values or hex code or is it some weird proprietary thing? So I think it's RGB. Um, but I think what happens if, if your RGB values drop below a threshold, it just goes off. Um, so what we okay. did, we had to like clamp values, I think, uh, in order to make it work properly and for mm-hmm. it to be like properly vibrant and to match the colors. It, like it doesn't necessarily match like screen colors one to one, so you have right. to make some changes to that if that's like important. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's really easy and it's like really good fun. It was good. To, I tweeted it as well, and we got loads of uh, loads of retweets from that um, from PS4 users, I think. So it's good to reach that player base as well. Yeah, I, I love that GIF. I've seen that GIF on on your Twitter account of you just messing with the the sliders on the PS4 and it switching the colors yeah, appropriately. Yeah. That's cool. Um, the uh, so did you develop the game? And you said you prototyped in Construct, but did you develop in Unity or something else? Yeah, that's right. So we prototyped in Construct too, just to get something out really quickly. Um, and I, I the previous game I made in Construct too as well. Um, but we knew that we wanted to hit PlayStation consoles. We wanted to have sort of 60 frames per second across everything. So in order to do that, we had to use another engine, really. And around that time, Unity had just released their 2D tools set. Um, yeah. And that seemed pretty much perfect for what we wanted to do. So we went with that in the end. Yeah, I really I really like their their 2D suite. Of, I'm pretty much mainly Unity, though now, since Game Maker is on that humble bundle for like 15 bucks yeah. for the whole shebang. <laughs> uh, so you... I bring that up because since we were talking about color and I just wanted to mention how much I hate the the color object in Unity because oh, yeah. it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> just simply from the perspective of, you know, okay, it's RGBA values, but instead of doing something sensible like 0 to 255, we're going to do 0 to uh, 1. Yeah. And then you got to fix... I think I have a method in one of my games where I'm literally doing, you know, division to like or a conversion from uh, 
255 0 to 1 to 0 to Is figure out the another, proper I thought there was a color object that had two uh, like 255 values as well. Isn't there a color thing too or something? There might. They might have just added it, but uh, last I checked they didn't. Ah, uh, makes sense. Ah, uh, yeah, there like, is. Man, yeah, really? color 32 objects. You should, okay. you should check that out. All right, I'll look into that. <laughs> I've lost the uh, Hangouts tab. I should never have done this. Okay, I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> um, as long as you didn't close it, I think we're good. Cool. The, the, um... But yeah, so I wanted to talk about the accessibility and specifically, you know, your your colorblind support and that your solution for that. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, could you go into that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So when we first like prototyped the game, we took it to a few sort of events and competitions and stuff like really early on, and it was pretty clear straight away that like a lot of people struggled with the game. Like it, we were. It was around sort of ten percent struggled. Uh, some people would struggle with differentiating certain colors, whereas other people would struggle with differentiating completely different other colors. And it confused us for a little while, but then we did a bit of research and we realized that, firstly, like not everyone sees colors the same way. It may not be color blindness, but things might be slightly shifted. So certain colors might be slightly different, more difficult to differentiate, even if people aren't actually color blind. And then uh, further from that, you've got full color blindness, all sorts of different types of color blindness, um, mixing up reds, blues, all sorts of stuff. Um, So uh, we knew fairly early on that we needed to devise some sort of system that allowed everyone to be able to play as best as possible. So what we started doing to begin with was pattern overlays. So we'd have sort of like hexagonal patterns overlaying green. We'd have like cross-hatching patterns overlaying red and stuff. So what people could do is they could differentiate patterns as well as colors and we were hoping to kind of use that pattern as like part of the aesthetic so it would be there for uh it would be there for everyone essentially and the game would be just be playable for everyone uh, but the problem was that as our art style got um increased in fidelity and became more detailed um overlaying a pattern just made things like 10 times harder it made things worse for people that suffered from color blindness because there was so much visual noise uh, it was really difficult to differentiate anything from anything, really. Um, so we took a step back and we looked at other sort of colorblind solutions that have been used in other sort of media forms. And there's this thing called, um, oh, what's it called? Color Ad? Color? I think it's called Color Ad. It's a Portuguese symbol-based system um, that they use uh, specifically to identify colors for things like, say you're buying a green T-shirt and you want to know it's green. Um, you'd be able to see a symbol and that would give you that information. But uh, there was something different to what we were doing and to what they were doing. What they were doing is allowing people with colorblindness to identify whether something is green, for example. Um, Whereas what we were doing is we wanted to identify two matching colors. It didn't matter whether it was green or if it was red. What we wanted the player to do was be able to match those two colors. Um, So instead of implementing their system, which had a load of licensing uh, requirements and stuff anyway, so it would have made things very difficult, uh, we ended up devising our own system, our own symbol-based system, which was kind of inspired by sort of runic alchemic symbology. Yeah. Um, And that kind of ties in with some of the early narrative stuff that we'd written. So that was kind of very contextual. Um, So enabling this sort of colorblind mode didn't sort of take away from the game experience it kind of added to the context of the game so it made sense um and i think what was very important and i think the reason that this has been picked up so much in press and actually turned out to be a really big 
part of our reviews, like every review is pretty much picked up on our accessibility features, is that we integrated it from the beginning and we designed the game around those accessibility, accessibility features rather than designing the game and then adding them into the end. Um, and you'll see this throughout, like, for example, the lasers in the game. Um, normally what would happen, I think when we designed the lasers originally, they were just like, there was a little um, thing, a laser beam outlet, and, and then the laser would come out. Um, uh -huh. But that only meant that we had a very thin, like, strand of color. Um, and then we couldn't overlay a symbol over it because there was nowhere for that symbol to go. So what we then did is at the sources we made much bigger and we added big circular sources at the beginning of the lasers where we could put a symbol inside. And actually we found what that meant is that um, even with colorblind mode off, that gave a greater sort of surface area of color and it enabled people to match colors better anyway. Uh, so building this accessibility mode in from the very beginning uh, helped make the game better even for people that didn't suffer from color blindness because it increased the surface area of colors and it made it easier for people to match them that's awesome like um because i i know visual accessibility in games is still kind of a, a major issue in most games and um that's good that you brought up the the kind of alchemical symbols thing because i do remember looking at a screenshot of your game and seeing the the accessibility symbols on i'm like that looks like like an astrology <laughs> yes. symbol like it looks like aries or something yeah. for the red but um yeah that's really cool did you have to like how much of this stuff was kind of like kind of a b testing and how much of it was like all right we're gonna sit down and do the research like i didn't even hear know about the portuguese uh system so that's that's news to me. But did you work with any like visual scientists, any sort of like yeah, so, people um, of that sort? There's in London. There's an accessibility expert called Ian Hamilton, and he sort of travels all around the world doing talks on uh, game accessibility and um, running game jams as well, which are focused on game accessibility, making games for people that suffer from various disabilities and stuff. Uh, and he's incredibly knowledgeable in that regard. Um, and he generally he does consultation, I think, for sort of AAA studios, and that was sort of, sort of the services that we we wouldn't have been able to afford on our budget. Um, but we were able to speak to him on Twitter, and uh, we had an email correspondence and stuff. And he offered us a whole ton of advice, and he put, put pointed us to a load of resources and things like that. And it was him actually that kind of uh, uh, told us about this. Well, I suggested this sort of Portuguese color-based system, and it was him that advised us to, to sort of consider devising our own system because our goal was not to identify colors it was to match colors in the game um and really i i that wasn't something i'd thought about but he sort of planted that idea in my head um so he offered us a lot of support and he gave us pointed us to a whole bunch of different resources and i think there's a game accessibility website i think it's called just called game accessibility and it has a bunch of pointers for kind of every aspect of the game um so there's a bunch of a bunch of resources out there um but yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where it all started. And then in terms of testing, um, we didn't do a huge amount of A/B testing. It was very much so. What I did is there's a, a colorblind subreddit, and I went on there and I posted the trailer, the original trailer to our game without colorblind support. And I think my title was like, "Hey guys, I think I've created your worst nightmare. Could you help? <laughs> could you help me out?" <laughs> that's how you get. That's how you get the upvotes, man. That's how you get them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, they offered they a, a bunch of them signed up to do to help out with testing and stuff. And generally, like the, the response was really good to uh, uh, to the symbol system that we devised. One thing that I had to keep refining was making sure that so as levels got bigger and more complex, you might have lasers and their source might be off screen. 
and that's kind of where the symbol was. So you'd have to be very careful about making sure that all symbols that were influencing gameplay at the time were visible at the time. And I found the best way to do that is just to um, have like a desaturate overlay over the game. So like a, a, a screen effects that desaturates mm -hmm. the game. And then as you, as a player, you, you play through the game just trying to match the symbols and not relying on color at all. And generally, if you can get that to work and that's playable, then you've, then, then it will work for people that suffer from color blindness. Awesome. Do you feel like any of the, you know, the engagement with, you know, colorblind subreddit or um, this uh, professional you spoke about, um, Ian, you know, do you think that helps, um, obviously it helped make the product better, but do you think that helped engage um, notoriety, you know, in terms of that? Do you think that that helped spread the word? Do you think that was mostly like, all right, they all helped with their part and that's pretty much the long and short of them talking about the game? Yeah, I mean, so it's difficult to quantify, but I think, it, so Ian Hamilton, he, after he had helped us out and we had got a lot of press coverage and everything else, he then did a talk at GDC where Hugh was quite a big a big part of that talk. Um, so I think we got a lot of coverage in that. And then um, I, if, it was always my idea to kind of try and push this uh, colorblind support to the press because it was always a question that we got asked. So I think if we anticipated that question, uh, the press would kind of pick it up and it offered kind of a, more of a development slant to, to some of the press articles. So I thought that would be interesting. Um, and we released, we, re we released sort of a trailer or a, tw a Twitter sort of GIF showing, showcasing our colorblind support. Um, and I think, I think that was really what the reviewers picked up on and, and the press picked up on. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, I'm not sure cool. that the, I'm not sure that the colorblind subreddit really translated to a huge amount of sort of publicity traction. Uh, right. but I think getting them on board, like getting the feature perfect would played a big part in the rest in the press picking it up later. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the story aspect earlier about the, uh, you know, it's Hugh and his mom at creating this device to allow them perceive color. And I'm getting a lot of parallels between that and kind of the opening of Fez. Oh, really? Cool. Yeah. Um, have you played Fez? So I played the, I played the beginning of Fez um, but I didn't get very far. I got lost and confused. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was able to finish that game, but like when it's like, all right, now collect all the collectibles. I was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I played it. I played it for from the beginning. I don't need a hundred percent this thing. Yeah, sure. But um, yeah, the beginning kind of starts out like that. There, there's no um, uh, mother son relationship, but uh, Gomez, the the playable character in that, his Fez gives him the ability to perceive volume. Oh, so okay. it's kind of so the second you mentioned that it kind of gave me the, the 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 same inklings. Oh, that's interesting. And Fez, a lot like Hugh, is just a beautiful game, just like beautifully stylistic things like that. And I think, good job, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> awesome. Thanks very much. Uh, but yeah, so I'm I'm really looking forward to to trying out Hugh. I haven't got a chance to play it yet, but um. Everyone seems really excited about it and actually had, because in our local game development community, someone brought it up um, Wednesday night. Oh, awesome. But they didn't, they didn't say the name. They were like, oh, yeah, it was this really cool game. It's like a, it's like a color-based puzzle game. And I was like, oh, yeah, what's, what's the name of the game? He's like, oh, I think it's called Hugh. I was like, I'm going to be talking to that guy <laughs> this weekend. Awesome. Um, yeah. But so moving from uh, Hugh, what games have you been playing, Henry? What games? Um, so, I mean, I finished Inside a couple of weeks ago. Um, 
and I really enjoyed that. And I've got some friends, they finished developing their game, The Turing Test. Um, yes, I heard about that one, yeah. Yeah, so they gave me a code for that, and I've literally just installed it on Steam, so I'm probably going to start playing that today. Uh, what's your impression? I haven't played Inside. I've, um, I'm, I'm going to get around to it because everyone is super hyped on that game yeah. but what's what's your impression on it yeah blew me away it's amazing is yeah definitely one of the most surprising games i've ever played uh-huh. like by the end you're just like oh my god that was insane <laughs> and play dead is based out of where do you know i don't know off the top of my head actually there are always okay. events that i go to but i don't know where they're based out i weren't i wasn't sure if they were a u.s or a european or i, th- I don't know actually i don't know off the top of my head uh, well, that's cool. Play anything else? I was hoping. <laughs> well, the, well, I've played a lot of Hue. It's re- this is a really good puzzle platformer. Um, yeah, yeah, I heard, I heard good things. <laughs> I think I'll rack- be talking to the developer of that. <laughs> I've this Saturday. Up, that's, that's got all of my Steam hours at the moment. So yeah, I mean, oh, I've God. been so wrapped up in the development of Hue, I haven't had a huge amount of time to play loads of games. Uh, but I must have played a games at uh, events that I've been to. I re- I'm really looking forward to playing. I think it's called Pat's 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 Pat's. Have you heard of that? Uh uh-uh. uh It's like it released absolutely no fanfare, but it's got this amazing sort of. I don't really like low poly art normally, um, but this really uh-huh. reminds me of like. I don't know if you've ever played a game called Little Big Adventure, um, but there's old school like no. isometric games where they first had like conceived low poly arts they were only just able to get polygonal sort of characters into uh, these isometric worlds and they were so basic and low poly um it's uh but not many games have done that most games are like embracing like these really well lit like uh low poly art styles that i'm really bored of at the moment but this totally embraces like the really old school low poly like super limited characters where you've just got like circles for heads and like triangles for hands um, and there's this game, it, it came out and it's got an amazing soundtrack. Oh, what's it called? I'll, I'll try to find the name. Uh, I'm, I'm waiting for the day when someone does that low poly aesthetic, but they keep like the really low, uh, uh, really low res textures. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's, <laughs> so oh, there's, like, there's one in development at the moment. I can't remember what it's called, but, uh, they're trying to emulate like, uh, PS one style. So it's yeah. got the low poly style and the low poly. I think it's like a survival horror game. It's, it's even got all, like all the glitches where you can like clip into the wall and stuff. It's, <laughs> it's like super authentic. It's really weird. It's a yeah. little bit, it's a little bit too authentic. It just looks like a really old school game. <laughs> it's too real, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the game's called Pan Pan. Um, I think lots of people are comparing it to Monument Valley, but for me, it's, it's very different. It looks awesome. I think I'll, I'll pick that up soon as, my next my next game to play yeah the, every time you say the title i just think pat upon like yeah. I'm, I'm waiting for you to say pan pan upon pan pow <laughs> yeah pit pop well since you've mostly been playing hugh mm. uh let's stick on the hugh conversation because you remind me of some other stuff uh first uh what's what's your listed hour account on steam for hugh and then second what is um i'll check how has now. the post What's the post-release uh, process been like for you guys in terms of support and everything? So my hours are two thousand, but oh my god, I don't think that's <laughs> I don't think that's accurate because that doesn't even include before we integrated Steamworks stuff and like when we when we stripped out like the DRM. Uh, so mm-hmm. 
That's two thousand hours, but I think that's uh, that's not it's really too, reflective. It's too low, is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's probably more like double 10,000. 10, I don't know if that's actually feasible, pos- possible, but <laughs> it feels like it. And what was the other question post launch? Yeah. Uh, so it, it's been it's been pretty tough. Like pre launch was really hard. I think the night before the embargo lifted for the reviews was the most sleepless, horrible night of my life. It was insane. Oh. Um, just like I had no idea what the critical reception was, would be like. So I've seen so many games that have maybe won awards and stuff, but then have kind of gone on to be critically like not panned, but like tepidly received, I guess. And that was not something I really wanted to happen. Um, so that was really nerve wracking. And then, uh, after release, like I was supposed to be developing like the Vita ports working on, so working on the Vita port, working on the windows 10 build for the windows 10 store. Um, but it was really difficult to get anything done. Like that week after release, all I was doing is refreshing reviews, like checking Twitter, uh, like commenting on bad reviews, being like, no, you're wrong. It's not that bad. <laughs> no, I didn't actually do that. I learned, I learned that lesson after the first game. Don't ever, right. comment, don't ever comment on reviews. Um, but I was super engaged with reviews and stuff. I was checking all the time. And that kind of com- completely consumed me for that re- week. I wasn't able to do any real development work. Didn't really get. I think I think you earn that. <laughs> I think as developers, I think we earn at least a, a week of reflection. Yeah, if not solace, at least reflection <laughs> for sure. Um, but I was trying to manage that with porting, so that was all a bit hectic. But then the launch party last night, um, which was we held in London, we've got a gaming themed bar in London, and uh, that's kind of where all the indie developers sort of co work there during the day. And uh, they host a ton of different parties for, for games like Devolver, Digital had have parties there and like loads of big studios have parties there. And it's really awesome. But we were lucky to have our launch party there. And that was a good sort of celebration of the end of the game, really. We had a really awesome turnout and everyone was super positive. Um, so that was that felt like a little bit of a, a cutoff, I guess, or a climax. I'm not sure the words to describe it. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, now now it's a little bit more chilled out and I feel like I'm working on the beta stuff. Um, things are going to calm down a bit and then it's just going to release some patches and then maybe do some content updates, see how things go uh, and take it a little bit easy for a bit. And then on to the next project <laughs> and the next two years of stress followed by a week of even more stress. Oh, I don't know. I think for the next thing that I do, I'm just going to do something really simple like a minimalist mobile game or like some sort of simple mobile game, maybe focus on some sort of tech aspects that I want to learn. So it's more of a learning exercise than it is like a hardcore game development project. Um, really mm. something simple and see how that goes. And then maybe then maybe pick up a massive project again after that. <laughs> yeah, that sounds, that sounds like a good idea. Something else that engages another part of your brain instead of, you know, you see devs kind of not doing the same project over and over, but you know, hitting the same aspects of game development either because they're comfortable with it or, you know, or they make good games in, in that aspect. Um, yeah. And I feel like as creators, we should try to be a little bit more, you know, experimental in, in ways. And I'm sure a lot of us are. We just never, those projects never see the light of day, but sure. pushing that boundary. With yeah, totally. And, and that's something I'm very aware of. That's kind of the trap that I don't want to get in. I, I've worked on other games in the past. One of those games is uh, there's a sequel being developed at the moment. And that's something I particularly didn't want to be involved in, like working on sequels for previous games that I worked on because 
I'm sure there's there's space to innovate within those boundaries, but still, it's you're you're treading a lot of the same path in terms of like uh, pipelines, art pipelines, technology, like um, uh, game. A lot of the gameplay is going to be similar. I don't really feel like you've got a chance to explore new things in in the way that you. I don't think you've got a chance to learn as much as you would do by com- doing completely new projects, stuff that's way outside your comfort zone. Definitely. Um, I've run out of questions. Oh no! <laughs> I'll ask you. Maybe. I'll ask you a question then. What are you? Right. What are you playing at the moment? Uh, I am playing um, two games. Um, and I've I've been playing them for a little bit now, like two or three weeks. One is uh, Tomb of the Mask, um, okay. which which I've touched on before. I don't know if you've heard of it. I but, uh, it's a it's a mobile game. Um, and the comparisons I make are it's like Pac Man 256, um, if you've played that, and then also V V V V V V V. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, so it's very low, low, you know, pixel art kind of, kind of a dwarf fortress aesthetic, but not with ASCII art, but with like pixel characters. Sure. And it's a infinite runner um, that runs vertically, and you basically, I think the premise is like you put on this mask inside this tomb. Um, and the start screen is this like purple tower, like very low pixel art tower that just stretches into the sky for infinity, like kind of representing the infinite runner aspect of it. Yeah. And, th- and then you enter this maze and you swipe a direction and your character flies in that direction and you collect coins and you try to find your way around this maze and avoid us os- um, obstacles. Um, kind of a similar way of like uh, thousand one spikes. Okay. If you've played that. Yeah, but yeah. the VVV aspect comes in because he like can touch he can land on any wall and things and he stands on that side, so like gravity is affected by which way you swipe. Oh, okay. Things and like is that. it is it within a maze, is it then? Yes. Uh, okay. So like a pack a Pac Man style maze. Um a little wider area, so sometimes you'll just enter like a solid you know, a large uh room. Yeah. And coins will just line the perimeter of the room so you can swipe around it and then there are spike traps and stuff you want to avoid okay cool that sounds cool yeah um i'm, I'm very picky about like mobile games mm. that i pick up and play because you know sometimes i'll pick one up and be like oh yeah i could see myself playing this and then three days later i'm like no nah. yeah it's 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 hard to find that perfect game of like satisfying gameplay but also like the ability to just pick it up for five minutes and be able to put it down just because you need a distraction for how long. Yeah, sure. And a lot of games either hit one or the other, but very rarely I feel like do they hit both. Yeah, um, definitely. Like, you know, the 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 big complaint with like Pokemon Go is that you just have to constantly be in it to reap any sort of reward or enjoyment, whereas something like Tomb of the Mask, you can just pick it up, put it down, and then you pick it up three weeks later and it's fine. You don't feel like you're behind any curve. Yeah. Um, and then the other game I've been playing still is, uh, super Mario 3d world. Okay, cool. Cause they just discount that down to, um, uh, $20, uh, us. And so I just went and picked that up. Uh, I, re- <laughs> so I picked up a TV a couple weeks ago. Um, cause we moved into this apartment and I didn't have a large, tv um you know and i just started a new job and stuff i was like i'm gonna get a tv sure i bought a tv at the local target in richmond here and you know 
and there's you know kind of a lot of fanfare when you buy a television because like okay we gotta go in the back and we gotta get the big hand cart and we gotta truck it out to your car and then we gotta put it in your car uh so and i'm a very introverted person so i don't like attention in that way (laughs) where it's like let us let us at your beck and call we will do whatever we need to do i was like no i just you know i'll lift the tv myself the 40 inch tv and i'll take it to the car but um so i bought this tv and i was like all right thank you thank you and then like i found out that super mario 3d world was discounted so i was like i'm gonna go buy super mario 3d world and i just happened to be at target and i was like i'm gonna buy it and but you have to you know the video games are locked behind the glass you have to go ask a, a, a store worker uh to unlock the glass so i go walk over to t- technology section because they normally have the keys and you have to buy it over there and it's the same people that like <laughs> delivered my tv and i'm like oh nope i'm not buying this <laughs> game from this target and i literally i walked out of the store without buying it and then i happened to be uh at my parents house um and they live on the coast about uh two hours away and i happened to also go to a target with my father that night and i'm like I'm going to get it here because they don't know me here. Uh, so that's that's the kind of person I am. I'm also uh, the kind of person that won't eat the, at the same Chipotle if they start recognizing me. Oh, man, I'm exactly the same. Uh, oh, yeah. It's funny you should say this. I started to, So this mainly started happening. It, it got worse when I was working from home. And the, more, the longer I worked from home and sort of lacked sort of social interaction, I developed these weird sort of social quirks so if i would go get a coffee i'd go get a coffee every day because it was the only chance i'd get to leave the house if i was like in crunch mode and i'd go get a coffee but when they started recognizing me by name i was like this is too weird this is way too personal and i'd switch it up and i'd go to a completely different coffee shop and then what really weirded me out is that they knew me so well they had my coffee ready for me at the till before i even got there and they knew me by name (sighs) and i was like this is way too weird. I'm never coming back here yeah. again. <laughs> For me, I, I went to the Chipotle because there's one on campus. And I, I went like once a week, maybe twice a week if I was feeling dangerous with my health. <laughs> uh, but I would go in and the uh, person working the register just went, welcome back. And I was like, oh, no. Because, I mean, I just like, did you? Leave a word out there. Did, didn't you mean welcome back, fatty? Welcome back, <laughs> you piece of human slime. Oh, uh, yeah. So, um, but yeah. So, Super Mario Brothers 3D World. Cool. Uh, I've been playing that. Um, uh, I uh, I like it, but you know, I don't know how much. Um, what your opinion, or you know, if you're big Nintendo guy. Um, yeah, I haven't played it myself. I used to be big Nintendo, but only up until the SNES. <laughs> so I'm a little bit behind in every other regard. So Hugh coming to the Super Nintendo. Oh uh, yes, you heard it here first. That would be awesome. Um, There's been but, some indie uh, games that have released on SNES. There was some guys in London who developed a SNES game. I don't know how they did it, but it, they had it on a cartridge and everything. Yeah. Um, I remember there was one project where they had. Um, I don't know if it was regular Nintendo or Super Nintendo, but the uh, they it had a USB port in it. Okay, cool. So, so basically, there is a Steam or PC release, and you would play that, and then hook up, and then plug your save into the to the USB, soldered onto the uh, cartridge, and then plug it into your uh, NES or SNES, and um, it would be a different game. But like the progress that you made in your PC game affected the progress in the other one. Amazing. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, projects like that are super weird and but also like really impressive. Yeah. And I would like I would love to see like Yacht Club try to do like actually port um Shovel Knight. Yeah, yeah. To Nintendo. Because I mean, because most of that stuff, like, you know, if you've seen any of their breakdowns for like, all right, this is how we did the artwork and this is how we matched it a lot. And they'd like, you know, cut some, like, made some tweaks here and there. But for the most part, it's it's the same. And I would see, I'm curious how much that process would work. Yeah. Or even like converting it from Unity or whatever engine they were using to try to get it to work on that chipset. I, mean, I might put a feature request in on the Unity feature requests. <laughs> S- <snow> support <laughs> export to Nintendo. <laughs> um, but yeah. So my main complaint with Super Mario 3D World is not the fact that it's bad, but the fact that it's not Super Mario Galaxy Three. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> it's not. It's not that traditional style of full 3D console Mario games. Sure, sure. Um, because for me. I think in that in that lineage, my favorite is uh, uh, Super Mario Sunshine. Yeah, just because it it captures so many things that are traditional Mario, but also like are unique to that game. So just the the water gun mechanic, and also you know the 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 island theming and all of it. And and I still and I like Super Mario Galaxy one and two as well, but I feel like they found something. They, they found something that was not easily communicated with those old games that they switched styles to this more kind of modular compact version mm-hmm. of the Mario franchise. Like if you look at um, the uh, like in Super Mario 3D World and 3D Land that there's a, a star requirement. So when you get to a certain castle, it says you need to have collected this many green stars to unlock it. And there's that um, silent requirement in Sunshine where it's like, all right, you want to unlock a new world or portion of the map, you need this many shine sprites. But they never explicitly say it. Yeah. So I think it's it's that kind of like, all right, we need to be a little bit more hand-holding if we want to continually grow our audience and get the next generation of kids. Okay, that's interesting. So, uh, I mean, this is an unpopular opinion, but I, I didn't really like Super Mario Sunshine. And I, I think it's because when I played Super Mario 64 and then all the Super Mario games on the, the NES and the SNES, because it was so lo-fi, like I had a completely different image in my head about uh, like how it translated into my imagination was completely different. And then I felt the way Super Mario Sunshine went and, and the galaxy as well. It was, a lo- it was very sort of, um, it was kind of like Candy Cotton-esque. So like there was mm-hmm. so much like, juice they call it now in terms of like the stars going everywhere everything had like rim lighting everything was like it kind of had that sort of, sort of hyper japanese feel to me whereas for me it was especially like the super mario on the nes and the snares it was always more subtle um and i always imagine things to be more like uh, i'm trying to think of the american way of saying this but there's like there's these two different children tv shows in the uk there's CITV and CBBC, they're called. And one of them is always like really hyper intense. And the other one is like more mellow, chilled out, more subtle. And I, f- I always felt like uh, the Super Mario's, the way it translated into the modern age kind of went more in one direction to, ha- to how I maybe had imagined it as a, as, yeah. a, as a child. 
a little more chibi or a little more like because if you look at Super Mario Brothers one, it's very gritty. Yeah, in a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I, I could see that comparison where it's like right now we're getting the Disney Channel, yeah, Super Mario Brothers, but we want like the Adventure Time or the Cartoon Network Super Mario Brothers, maybe yeah. something a little bit more relatable or you know adult. Yeah, definitely, and that's that's totally true. Like Super Mario Brothers three, like when you go into the like it's super imaginative, so you still got like all the the, the crazy trippy everything. Um, but then you go into like the temple and then the music, like, and then when you've got, um, you go into those levels where you've got the things that the tells that walk on the ceiling and you've got like the do 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 do, and you've got like some of this <laughs> like pretty dark music, like those different emotions that you, that I felt as a child, I, d- I didn't feel like I felt everything was just like hyper intense in the newer ones. Um, mm-hmm. but I to be fair, I haven't played a huge amount of the Super Mario Galaxy, so maybe that's different as you play through. Um, I think if the complaints you're talking about for sunshine you're also going to see in galaxy yeah. maybe to a less extent galaxy really captures more of the sense of wonder because it's got this like great orchestral soundtrack and it's about like you know it's it's almost like a, a studio ghibli film in the sense of like you kind of look out into the universe and you're you just see the majesty of it it's, it's even the start screen is like that because it's just like this camera panning across the horizon of a planet looking at it from outer space. So it's got a lot of like the, a sense of, of wonder, like a Fantasia yeah. almost kind of thing. Uh, but I would say uh, Super Mario 3D World 3D Land or more of the kind that you probably really wouldn't like because mm. everything from, you know, the characters to the puffs of smoke that appear when they start sprinting, like it's all the word I constantly refer to use is chewy. Yeah. Cause it just looks like it's made out of like jello yeah. or like chewy gummy bears, yeah. something like that. And everything's super reflective and yeah, it's got exactly. the sheen to it. And it's the, it's the, yeah, the I, I always bothered me the rim lighting because it didn't make any physical sense. Like everything had rim lighting, whether there yeah. was a light behind it or not. Like everything just like pops out of the screen, like as much as possible. Yeah. It's, Mario galaxy, especially had yeah. a lot of that. And, um, I think, because uh, my, my co-founder, Mason, um, was talking about it because um, he's more interested in some of that engine tech than I am. And I think because uh, there's no there's no uh, there's no lighting system on the Wii, at least for those games, oh. for their engine. So I think all that lighting was baked in. Yeah. So they just, you know, the reason he is like glowing like a halo, <laughs> even in the darkest depths of that planet is because, you know, he's just got super baked in lighting that's like part of his texture yeah sure makes sense yeah i had something and it slipped away oh i th- here's um wait. and we don't have to d- discuss this if you don't want to uh henry but this was something i was um, curious about since you know us americans over here don't only have this american perspective on this but <laughs> I, I was curious um, if you wanted to talk about your, you know, um, opinions on Brexit mm-hmm. and affecting the game community and things like that. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, so, I vote to stay in the in the European Union, um, and pretty as much a, as I think most people our age would have done. Yeah. I believe. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and there's it's an interesting discussion because I've got a lot of friends that are diehard socialists, and they voted to uh, to leave the European Union because they felt that we were being completely led by free market capitalism 
and that there's these all these transnational companies that are completely dictating uh, um, trade agreements and stuff. And that's really what the European Union is about. It's about free trade for massive corporations. So I don't, I don't think it was as cut and dry as a lot of people made out. Um, but I think in terms of the games industry, it's, it's irrefutably going to be damaging. I, I, I can't see any way around it. Like, I mean, it, just checking local job market in, in London, I think uh, open positions have dropped 20%. Um, and I think it's going to have a, a massive impact on uh, almost every aspect of game development, whether it's from traveling to events to showcase, whether it's from uh, getting investment from the European Union, which they do do. They fund a lot of creative projects. Um, uh, there's a whole wealth of games development stuff that's that's going to suffer. Um, but I, I also think that there's uh, that it's not, I don't think there's really any pros to it, but I do think that uh, the the games industry is strong, uh, and that they're they're going to find I don't they're going to find a, a way to make it work eventually. I don't think everything's just going to collapse and this all hell is going to break loose. I think whatever happens now, whether it's renegotiated deals, whether it's like compromises, uh, whatever happens moving forwards, that uh, there, there's going to be a way for me, people to make it to make it work. I don't think it's all. I mean, the, uh, after that happens, and I got on the tube in the morning uh, on the, on the way into the office. That was the most depressing tube journey I've ever seen. Like, I oh, think no. London overwhelmingly voted to stay in, um, and everyone was just like so downtrodden. It was, uh, yeah. it was unbelievable. It was because I mean, L- London is you know it's one of the largest cities in the world, and it's affected by so much international trade. I mean, yeah, it, it they would have to. Yeah, exactly, and. Uh, it was pretty London voted to stay in, but pretty much everywhere else in England voted to leave. Like, uh, like, but that's mainly sort of uh, the cu- the countryside, I guess, and sort of uh, northern cities and uh, and things like that. And to be fair, I mean, they have reasons to be uh, um, uh, annoyed, I guess, at, at the government um, because. Our, our government has consistently neglected the rest of the UK and focused almost solely on London. Um, and it was only a matter of time until that came back and bit them in the ass, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, and that's kind of what happened. I think it was pr- primarily a protest vote and really the government should have done a better job at, uh, looking at the broader picture in the UK and not just focusing on London. Um, yeah, almost everything. Uh, if you want a job in any industry, like you, that is, uh, media that is um, that is games, that is television, that is anything like that. You like you you have to be in London at some point in order to get those connections. That's almost a requirement. Really, there needs to be a focus on other big UK cities uh, and kind of uh, supporting those and supporting more rural areas as well. Um, and I think that should be their goal moving forwards to create a, a greater sort of level of contentment uh, with the situation sort of across the country because there I think there really isn't. A big game scene outside of there's there's London and there's Brighton, which is sort of a, a, a fraction of the size of the London game scene, really. And outside of that, there's really nothing else. Like, and that's pretty much the state across all sort of uh, media, media and tech industry in the UK. Um, where's Rare at? Out of curiosity, do you know? So they're in the middle of nowhere, actually. Okay, um, that's what I thought. <laughs> yeah, they've got like their own like campus essentially yeah compound somewhere yeah, out there yeah exactly um 
And and there's a the companies like Media Molecule and uh well the now defunct Lionhead, they were in um uh where was it? My brain is just not working at the moment. But they were just south of London, so they were just on the outskirts of London as well. Okay. So So it's like commuting town basically. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, um one of the things I, I read, which, you know, didn't even cross my mind about it, was, you know, how it affects uh, the crossing from Northern Ireland into the Republic of Ireland. Because there are people that live on one side, but work in the other. Oh. So, I didn't, I didn't yeah. know about that at all. That's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, you got to think of, you know, I, I don't know how exiting the European Union is going to affect, like, border policies. Mm. But I mean, I'm sure you you have to think it'll affect it somehow. But yep. there's going to be a, a a greater difficulty of of transitioning from one or the other. Yeah, well, they're saying that you need visas to cross these borders. So yeah, especially right. if you're in Northern Ireland and Ireland, which I wonder how that will work. I've got no idea. It's probably going to work very poorly. Yeah. <laughs> for for them, I can imagine. Yeah. Maybe this is um, revenge for Scotland not being able to <laughs> escape the UK. Yeah, well, Scotland's up in arms at the moment because they overwhelmingly voted to stay in the European Union and uh. they just voted against uh, leaving the UK. Um, so now they're, they've got almost full rights, really, to vote for another, well, to hold another referendum on leaving the United Kingdom yeah. um, and then joining the European Union as an independent nation. So. Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like the repercussions could be massive for the UK. I think not much of a kingdom. No, a diminishing <laughs> kingdom. It's a small kingdom. <laughs> the, the sun never shines on the British Empire. <laughs> the disunited well, kingdom, for sure. Yeah. Well. Um, yeah. I mean, if for nothing else, I mean, I heard it's a lot cheaper to get to the uk right now so maybe i'll come visit you guys over on the other it side is, of the it's pond cheaper in the uk it's not cheaper for us to leave though so we're screwed but <laughs> yeah. you, it's good hey. for you guys yeah we'll come say hello <laughs> um but yeah i mean uh, it's it's hard to fathom how you know especially if it you know sticks around you know people are still talking about it's like oh they could decide not to uphold the referendum and things like that but you got to think about what kind of repercussions that would have for democracy. in and of itself. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious, maybe it'll do something like maybe there will be a UK genre of games from this kind of created isolationism. So it's interesting that you mentioned that, actually. So for a while now, there's been... Um, tax breaks in the UK for the video games industry, where you can claim back 20% of your development costs through these tax breaks, um, which was is hugely beneficial for us um, because we were able to claim back, We while well, we massively overspent on our games, we were able to claim that back and then use it to pay our bills, essentially, to keep going. Um, but in order to fit that criteria, you have to prove that your game matches an Englishness criteria. Um, oh, I love this. <laughs> this is the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> so it's, it's truly bizarre. So like, um, like I think there's a number of different things, like whether your characters are English, whether the game is set in England, whether it promotes English values, um, and, and all these other sort of weird criteria. I think because we our game had like this English voiceover and all this other stuff, and we were able to claim these tax breaks. But it's definitely a, like an aim to encourage this sort of culture 
uh, to be sort of transferred into video games, which is, I mean, it seems completely arbitrary as a creator. Like, I don't want to make my game to this weird English criteria. Um, right. But it's, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's definitely working. Uh, there's definitely a lot more English, traditionally English games coming out of England because of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I can I can recognize the value in that and in, in having something that's that's culturally relevant in in new media. Like you look at um, like when President Obama visited Poland, uh, the Polish Prime Minister gave him I think it was like either a copy of The Witcher Three or like a bust of Geralt of Rivia or something. <laughs> yeah. Like some something that you know you have to think a statesman in the United States, especially an older guy, just receiving that and being like, "What? I don't understand." <laughs> but something that Poland's like, "Yeah, um, that's awesome." But yeah, I, I think there, there's some value in that. And I think, you know, if, if nothing else for like in, in educational purpose, because like, you know, you have to think about multiculturalism as we become a more globalized society and like someone picks up a UK game, you know, we, we get a lot of British media with like TV shows and things. Um, people over here won't stop talking about Broadchurch, but. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I haven't watched that uh, But it, um it, I, I, I think that that does have some value in it, if nothing else, than to stop all of the, the, the British stereotypes. Which, <laughs> being being a Anglo, uh, I was gonna say Anglophobe, no, an Anglo, what's the other one? Anglo, uh, shit. Someone who likes British culture, um, beyond the 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 stereotypes, you know, an Anglophile. You would like. Anglophile, that's what it is. <laughs> um. You, I, I would like to see more of that stop propagate because we had a um, an exchange student from, I think she was from Bristol or Cornwall. She came over and, you know, she had all the traditional British words. It's like, oh, a uh, hood of a car is called a bonnet, trunk of a car is called a boot, like yeah, things like that. Totally. And I'm like, you can completely communicate with me fine because I <laughs> studied all this stuff for some weird reason yeah, because yeah. I find it fascinating. Um. But no, I mean, I really, I really hope, you know, if, if you guys leave the EU that it works out in your favor, if you guys somehow manage to stay in the EU, it still works out in your favor because I feel like, you know, like you said, like you, the UK has lost a, a bunch of devs between like criteria, what is Criterion gone? Is it Bizarre Creations? I'm not I'm sure off the top of my head. Okay. But like, like you said, Lionhead, things like that, yeah. or, you know feel like rare was just a uh connect you know exporter for a while and now they're finally getting to make games that are unique to the rare aesthetic sure, um, sure. and then you have playtronic which is making ukulele which is just you know the part of rare that still wanted to make banjo kazooie <laughs> yeah exactly i've got some friends um, that work there it's yeah, it's been good to watch the development of it yeah yeah i think i think it's really really cool um but i'm waiting for uh ukulele springs and sprockets they yeah. re-implement the crafting back into it <laughs> um but yeah so but um i think i think we're gonna wind it down now cool um but thank you so much henry and i, I hope everyone checks out uh hugh and it's on ps4 and steam and you said it's coming to and Vita. on xbox one and on xbox one oh, okay yeah so it's out on steam for mac windows and linux it's out on xbox one and ps4 at the moment for around like ten pounds, 
ish around that area. It varies a little bit on platforms. And then it's coming out on Vita and uh, Wind- the Windows 10 store as well. Uh, well, I think Vita is like end of this month, beginning of October, and then Windows 10 will be sometime after that, I think. Cool. That's awesome. Um, and we would we would love to have you on again to talk about whatever else is, is on your guys' plate coming down the pike and awesome. Sounds any good. other any other stuff you'd like to talk about. But uh but thanks a lot, Henry. Cool. Henry. Thanks very much for having me on the show. It's been awesome. No problem.